All right, if you have a Bible, we're going to be uh, in Hebrews here in just a minute. And if you are a guest with us, I want to say a very special welcome to you. Uh, and I would love to get the chance to uh, say hello, meet you, shake your hand uh, by the fireplace on your way out if you've got a second. Uh, my, after the service, my wife and I met in the fall of 1997, um, and we were 18, so you can figure, you can do the math on that. Um, but we didn't start dating until the spring of, of the year 2000. This was about six to eight months after God working independently in our lives uh, brought, brought my wife um, to faith. She grew up in a nominal Catholic home and had never actually heard the gospel uh, until she was um, 19 year, eight, 20 years old. And then, so working there brought her to faith and then really getting a hold of my life and kind of giving me what some people might describe as kind of a gospel um, awakening where I was awakened to the, the depth of the gospel, not, not just as a means of entry into, um, into the kingdom of God, but, but the depths of what it uh, entailed and began growing in Christ. And so we began finding ourselves around each other quite a bit. Um, and um, long story short, we started dating a little bit. And we would date for a few times, and then she would say, I don't want to date anybody. And then we would date a few times, and then she would say, I don't want to date anybody. And so she just played yo-yo with my emotions for about three or four months. Uh, but then finally, um, my brother was graduating from uh, Air Force pilot school, and uh, he was getting his wings, and I needed to have a date to go to that. And so I kind of conned her, hey, I, got, I, I need somebody to go. And so she, she went with me to, to that, and then pretty... Soon after that, um, we both went to a camp um, in Colorado at CSU, Colorado State University, a camp for athletes in action. Um, and she's from Colorado, so I wound up meeting her family and those sorts of things. But at that camp, you know, we kind of came to that point that, that all relationships kind of come to in a dating relationship where you've got to have the, the DTR. You guys know what I'm talking about? You got to define the relationship. Okay, so, so what, what are we? Are we are we friends? Are we good friends? Are can I can I call you my girlfriend? Like where where are we? What what is going on here? And so we we had that DTR, we had that defining of the relationship, and decided yes, for for real, we're gonna you know we're gonna pursue this and see how the Lord may work in this. Um, and a year and a half later, we got engaged. Eight months after that, we got married. And this coming August will be 15 years that we've been married. But that DTR, this is something that everybody, you know, has to have, whether you call it that or not. You've got to, you know, what are we? What's going on here? Are we friends? Are we a couple? What's the deal? And in a quasi similar way, because I couldn't come up with any better illustration to try to get us into this. In a quasi similar way in the church, the relationship between the elders and the congregation has to be defined. And scripture defines it for us in a multitude of places but perhaps the most explicit one is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And so if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one around you. You can take it home. It's our gift to you. We're going to be on page 654 uh, in it. And while you're getting there, and especially for our first time guests, we're, we're in the midst of a series talking about the church, and in particular, how the church is to be structured, how the church is to be led. And we're looking at this 
And, and, you know, taking the time to teach on this so that, Lord willing, we will be a stronger church, a more healthy church and ready for continued numerical and spiritual growth that the Lord has been faithful to bring to us and and the planting of a church and sending off people to that work. Um, And so that's why we're going through this. But we will get back very soon, a couple more weeks into our regular rhythm of just expository preaching. Uh, We'll jump back into the book of Luke and uh, keep going through that. But kind of the summary statement we've been working through as we talk about the church uh, is, is this. That is, when you look at Scripture, the church is to be elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally governed. I've said that every single week, so I want us to actually say it together because I'm trying to get that to get into your mind. So we say that together. We're to be elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally governed. And that's how the church is to be structured. And so we've been walking through that, and we've been camped out in particular on that first portion, elder led for several weeks, talking about, well, why elders? Why, why should we have those? And then we talked about, well, what do elders do? And we talked about, well, who are the elders? How are they qualified? How are they chosen? And then today, again, kind of a DTR moment, how, how do elders in the congregation relate? How are they to relate? And I think we know the obvious answer that they're to work together, right? They're to work um, in, in concert with one another. But, but what does that look like? Like, you know, um, <clears throat> boots on the ground, rubber meets the road. What does that look like? And so I think Hebrews 13, verse 17, helps us with that very well. So read that with me if, if, you, if you turn there in your Bibles. Hebrews 13, 17, page 654. Obey your leaders. And submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of of no advantage to you. And so in a nutshell, for elders in the congregation to relate as Scripture instructs us, we have to have two things. Number one, elders who lead. And number two, A congregation that trusts. So number one, elders who lead. Number two, a congregation that trusts. And let me just say from the outset, and I've I've kidded with Steve even this morning about that, I've dreaded actually preaching this text. I've talked to the advisory council about that this summer. That It feels weird to me to, you know, preach on this text because it feels like I'm campaigning for my own authority or the authority of John or the authority of Chad. And I think the reason that I feel that is because as Americans, we read these obey, submit, uh uh-uh. I'm an American individual. Like that is our God, is our our self-determination. And so we read that and we're like, hmm. But then also on the flip side, we've seen throughout church history the last 2,000 years, but even, you know, we can just stay in this, um, you know, decade, abuses by pastors and elders of authority where they've abused that authority to horrible ends. And so it makes it just feel weird. And there's a resistance there, even in the church, to to this call to submit. Because people have been burned. And and so I I don't want to be viewed as some guy who's trying to gobble up some sort of false power. But what I do want to do is I want to preach the Word. In season, out of season. And this is God's Word. And it is what I've been called to preach. All of it. It's all breathed out by God. 
It's all profitable for teaching and training and reproof and equipping that, 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 that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. And so this is good and this is right and this is true. And the problem with anything when it comes to Scripture is not the Scripture. It's, it's us. It's our hearts. Scripture doesn't always tell us what we want it to say. It does tell us what God wants us to hear. And such is the case here, even if it comes off harsh at first. As we mine into this, I don't think, I don't think that was the intent. Obey and submit straight up, but the intent is a little softer, and hopefully we'll see some of that today. But he doesn't mince words. He used obey and submit for a reason. And so let's just kind of jump into this. Elders are to lead. The congregation is to trust their elders. And so um, elders who lead, number one, all right? For elders in the congregation, related scripture instructs, number one, we've got to have elders who lead. And so verse 17 says, obey your leaders. So if you're a close reader, you're going to say, hold on, that says leaders. That doesn't say elders. So what's going on here? We'll flip over to verse 7 real quick. Defines it a little bit for us. It says, remember your leaders. So we've got the same word. But then those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so as we talked about two weeks ago when we did what do elders do, we said that two of the biggest things that elders do is they preach and teach the word of God, they feed the flock, and they serve as examples to the flock. And so that's what these leaders are doing. So these leaders are elders. But by using the word leader, the author is trying to highlight that aspect of their pastoral work that they are to lead the church and the church is not to function as a committee of the whole but god has given the church the gift of elders to lead them and so it's not that unlike my family my family does not set vision for itself as a committee of the whole right with a 11 year old and a nine year old and a seven year old and a four year old we would never even decide, are we going to watch Dora the Explorer or Jesse? Like, there would be fights, and some of you know what I'm talking about, and some of you are like, what is he talking about? That's just the stage of life we're in. But I'm called to lead them. And, but, 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 but because of my love of God and of them, I want to lead them to places, to green pastures, to good things for them. And that's, so it is with the elders in the flock. Leading to good pastures, to green pastures. But what does this leading entail? Well, again, I think we fleshed a lot of that out two weeks ago, but as it relates particularly to Hebrews 13, 17, I think there are two things we can see in this text that it entails. And the first one is this. Part of the way that elders lead is by keeping watch over your souls and doing this for your advantage, all right, for your benefit. Look at verse 17 again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so elders are keeping watch over your souls so that you would be benefited, so that you would have advantage. That's kind of how... This rolls out. And so elders are to watch over your soul and they're to do so with joy 
for your benefit. And so I want you to see this. Elders exist for the benefit of the souls of the saints. Not just to get people converted to Christ, but to help you persevere to the end because the perseverance of your faith is proof that it is true faith and not fake and not phony. So, so are elders to, to introduce people to Christ and show them that, that while they are a sinner and that's why their life is so jacked up, just, I mean, because ours are as well, that though we're a sinner and we've sinned against the holy God, that He's made a way by which we could be forgiven, by which we could be not just wiped clean, but clothed with a righteousness that's not our own so that we can stand before God holy and blameless, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Jesus did, His sinless life in the place of our sinful life and His substitutionary death in the place of our deserved death and His you know, resurrection in victory over sin and death? Are we as elders, am I to, 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 to tell people that they can be reconciled and redeemed and, and, and rescued and adopted into the family of God? Are elders to do that? Yes, of course we are. We all are. As Christians, go and make disciples, right? We're all commissioned with that. We're all to be, 2 Corinthians 5, ambassadors for Christ. As though he's making his appeal through us. So absolutely. But one of my main callings as an elder, or John's main calling, Chad's main calling, and any elders will have in the future is to help you persevere in the faith. To help you grow. To watch over your soul. Because your relationship with Christ is never static. Like wherever you're at, your relationship with Christ is never static. You are either growing closer to Christ, maybe it's inch by inch, little bit by little bit, or you're slipping away from Him, not losing your salvation, because that's impossible since Jesus is the one who saves us. We don't save ourselves, so we can't undo what He did. But we're either growing towards Him or we're slipping away from Him it's never static. And there are several markers that you can see with, you know, slipping. But one of the most obvious is habitual absenteeism in the corporate gathering of the flock. Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves. And so by talking about that right now with those who are here, that's kind of weird. You're like, well, I don't need to hear this. I'm, I'm here. There's other people. But you have a responsibility just as I have a responsibility towards those that we've covenanted together as brothers and sisters in Christ to when we see slipping, we speak truth in love graciously, but for the benefit of one another. And the reason we do that is because, I mean, it's, if, if you are not taking the time to gather with the, with the body to hear the word declared, feast on the word, you know, ha ha corporate worship, then you're not on your private time having private worship and feasting on the word. You're, you're, it doesn't work that way. If you're not doing this, it's highly unlikely that you're doing this. And so leaders are to keep watch for the benefit of your soul. We're to teach, we're to train, we're to disciple, we're to guide, we're to protect, we're, we're to keep watch out for dangerous doctrines and deceitful 
uh, attitudes and divisive behaviors and, and to watch for your spiritual development and speak and guide and lead and push and reprove if need be. We're to shepherd. We're to care. We're to guard. We've also been given oversight of the church. I mean, that's what Peter 5, we did a couple weeks ago, you know, tells us. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And so authority, right? I mean, authority is absolutely there. But an elder is not to see his calling from a position of authority, but from a position of responsibility that God has entrusted to him. Because not only are we to keep watch over you, but we're going to get elders are going to give an account. James talks about how those that preach and teach and lead will will give a will have more to give. Let me just read it. It's James 3 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That scares stuff out of me. It scares, I mean, it's, it's sobering. We were going to give an account. We'll give verse 17 again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Okay, that's what, that's what elders do. As those who will have to give an account. Now, like the Captain Obvious commercials that you see on TV, which could really just kind of be a story of my life, because that's who I am. I mean, even yesterday at the air, we don't have time. But obviously, <laughs> obviously there's an accountability that elders have towards the, like the congregation. There's a level of accountability there. You, you should expect me and John and Chad to be faithful and diligent. You should hold us accountable to guard our personal walk with Christ, to, to administer and teach and preach the Word to you, and to be an example to the body. But far more uh, than, than that, far heavier than that, is the accountability that we will give before God. And that any future elder in here will give before God. Elders will give an account not only for their own life, but for how they shepherded the church. And that is a sobering thought. Serious business. But this accountability should not only affect the quality of the elders' leadership, but also the quality of the obedience with which the church follows their leadership. And so for the, to, for the church to, to function as God would have it, we've got to have elders who lead, but we also have to have, number two, a congregation that trusts. We've got to have a congregation that trusts. And I said a congregation, I put it that way instead of just saying a congregation that obeys and submits. I put trust because trust is what is behind the call to obey and submit. All right, that's the root of it, it is trust. For the church to be what God wants it to be, the congregation has to trust so that she will obey and submit to her elders. And we are not talking about blind gullibility here. We're not talking absolute blind authority. And what this text is talking about is in the vast, vast majority of situations, 
And insofar as the elders are following Christ and doing their job of teaching and leading biblically, in the vast majority of situations, the congregate, if, that, if that's happening, the congregation should follow their leadership. They should obey and submit to the leaders God has put over them for the benefit of their soul. And again, this is insofar as they are leading biblically. Meaning, if we are following Christ, follow us. If we're not, fire us. Mark Dever sums it up well. The basic attitude towards elders and pastors should be either trust them or replace them. And this trust ultimately, ultimately has to be something that is given. Ultimately, it can't be earned. And I understand the idea when people are like, you know, you've got to earn my trust. I understand the, you know, what's kind of behind that. It's this idea that in any relationship, particularly any position of leadership, the idea of, you know, show me your, um, show me your competence and then I will follow you. But that is at best, even as I was reading this week, that is at best half, only half true. And do we want our leaders in, in, in all spheres of life, but especially as it relates inside the church to be competent and be capable and be trustworthy? Absolutely. And in the church, we got qualifications on that. First Timothy 3, Titus 1, we talked about them last week. But at the same time, continuing what I was kind of quoting from just a moment ago, the kind of trust that we are called to give to our fellow imperfect humans be they family or friends, employers or government officials, and even leaders in a church can never finally be earned. It must be given as a gift. A gift in faith. In trust. More in the God who gives than of the elders He has given. So quote Mark Dever again. It is a serious spiritual deficiency in the church either to have leaders who are untrustworthy or to have members who are incapable of trusting. As individual members, we must be able to thank God for the leaders that He put among us. To recognize those who are gifted and trust them. Ephesians 4, Paul talks about, I read it, well, I kind of prayed through it earlier, talks about how uh, you know, God gives shepherds and teachers as a gift to the church. And so we are to receive and regard these leaders as those gifts, gifts that God has given us. And so insofar as they're leading biblically, not necessarily according to our preference, but leading biblically, we're to follow them. We're to trust them. We're to... Hebrews 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And so to be biblical and be what God wants us to be as a church, according to His Word, we have to be a congregation that trusts. That trusts the leadership. And obeys, it submits. And part of this trust, part of it, is so that elders might watch over our souls with joy and not with groaning, because that would be no advantage to you. Look at, look at it again. I mean, it's what it, it's what it says. That 
the congregation is to live in such a way that the elders are not constantly grieved, but, but are encouraged and joyful. Look, look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay, let them do this with joy. See, elder and not with groaning. Eldering is not without emotion. It is highly emotional. And joy and groaning, also translated grief, are both terms that can characterize the emotional response to leading and to being an elder. And this phrase here, let, the, let them do this, is a subjunctive verb. Conveying the idea of action, not just on the part of the elders as it relates to the attitude that they are to have, but also on the part of the congregation. That the congregation is to respond to the elders' leadership, not with neutrality, but in such a way that the elders might carry out their duties with joy and not with grief. And so, like, as a dad, when my kids, when my kids, you know, respond of their own volition and their own desire, and I see Christ being formed in them by their actions, and they do something not because daddy told them to, they just do it because Christ is at work in their heart, that fills me with joy. Fills me with joy. But I'm grieved when my kids do something satanic. And by that, I mean sin, because that's what sin is. It's satanic. It's it's devil worship. You're saying yes to the devil and no to God. Like when I was a kid, I thought devil worship was just what supposedly went on off on this road called Zion Road out in the where there's this funky cemetery. And supposedly there was all these occultic practices that happened back there. And so that road was supposedly haunted and everybody was terrified of it. And I remember I rode my bike to a friend's house seven miles one time to play. And then I was coming home from, and I'm not making this up. This is not, this is truly, I rode my bike seven miles to go hang out with him. And I'm coming home and it got dark on me and I had to go by Zion Road. I have never pedaled so fast in my life. I was flying through there. But this place supposedly like <clears throat> devil worship happened there. And I mean, weird things happen. And I'm not kidding. The lady who rents my grandmother's old house was driving down Zion Road like a week ago and one of those funky, weird, terrifying clowns jumped out of the cemetery onto the road as she drove by. Like, weird things happen there. And so that's what I used to think devil worship was. And, and it is that. Occultic practices, all those sorts of things. But in another way, like all sin is devil worship because you're saying yes to Satan and you're saying no to God. And so when I see that in my kids... Or in the church, it grieves me. But I want to see Christ being formed in us. That fills me with joy. And so it says here, let them do this with joy. Like that's the attitude that, 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 that we want for our leaders. Let them do this. Well, what's the this that they're to do with joy? It's eldering. It's the whole kit and caboodle. It's keeping watch over your soul. It's leading the congregation in the ways of God. It's teaching and exhorting. All right, the, the word. It's, it's living exemplary lives and serving as an example to the flock. It's watching over the souls of the congregation and guarding them from deceit 
from false doctrine, from error, from sin, from worldliness. And so in light of all of this, the responsibility of the church is to help the elders do this with joy and not groaning. John MacArthur puts it like this. It's the responsibility of the church to help their leaders rule with joy and satisfaction. One way of doing this is through the willing submission to their authority. The joy of our leaders in the Lord should be a motivation for submission. We're not to submit begrudgingly or out of a feeling of compulsion, but willingly so that our elders and pastors may experience joy in their work with us. And so I want you to notice a connection here. The overall effectiveness of watching over the souls of the congregation is very much connected to the overall attitude of the congregation toward the elders who are seeking to keep watch over. So so you play an integral role in how I care for your soul. In how how you receive me. It's, It's like this. You know, what I do is for the benefit of the congregation, for the benefit of their souls, for the advantage of your soul. But you are seeking to help me do that with joy. So there's like this certain, you know, this thing that's where I'm helping you. That's how we relate. And not just me, this is all elders in the church. And I'm not saying that eldering and pastoral ministry is always going to be or should always be hunky-dory. There are days that it is absolutely gut-wrenching. And I want to quit. But on the whole, it's to be a ministry of joy and love and a call to shepherd and feed and guard and tend. And when I see Christ being formed, that fills me with joy. And we see that happening. And so the whole idea of a shepherd, again, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, is like in the nativity set you may have at your house or that you, you may see. The one that's got a little shepherd with a sheep draped over his shoulders, right? And so he's bearing that sheep. He's bearing the burden of the weight of that sheep. It's on his shoulders, but he's still got a smile on his face. That's an elder. That's what an elder's to do. That's to be the attitude. Right? The, the attitude of someone who is helping to persevere your faith for the benefit of your soul, leading you to a joy that can't be destroyed by cancer or by calamity or by criticism because it's set on Christ. A joy that can't be taken from you by the circumstances of life because your joy is not set on that. It's set beyond the sun, above the sun where the only place that true satisfaction can be found. I mean, this is the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not here. It's in Christ. And this is how the elders in the congregation relate, with love and care and joy. The elders leading and the congregation trusting them and following them and on a very, very practical level, praying for the elders. I mean, look at verse 18. Pray for us. We're sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Kent Hughes, on this passage, comments like this. He says, 
how different the modern church would be if the majority of its people prayed for its pastors and lay leadership. There would be supernatural suspensions of business as usual in worship. There would be times of inexplicable visitations from the Holy Spirit. More lay people would come to grips with the deeper issues of life. The leadership vacuum would evaporate. There would be more conversions. If we would pray for leaders in the church. This past week, uh, I went up to Sevierville for the Tennessee Baptist Convention because I'm on the executive board that's been renamed the Mission Boards, what they renamed it this week. And just on a side note, the smoke was ridiculous. Um, if you've ever been to Sevierville or Pigeon Forge, you know you can see Great Big Mount Lacant as you're driving in. Well, Mount Lacant was gone. You could not see it at all. Um, the smoke was bad. But while I was there, um, the president of Lifeway, a guy named Tom Rayner, uh, spoke. And he was ta- talking about churches that are, um, that, that, that are growing. Either they've been planted and they're growing, or they, they've been revitalized. And he talked about one of the, they, they do stats, all kinds of stats. One of the things that they found was just that churches that are growing and thriving are praying. Now, we've tried to emphasize more times of prayer in here over the last two months. We do, you know, John prays for a while and I pray for a while and try to pray scripture and model that before you. So these are things that we do. But in your on your way out, you're going to find there's a little card. It looks like this. And it's a 30 times three times three prayer challenge. What, What is is it's 30 days, three minutes a day. That's not long. Praying three things for the church for the next 30 days. You'll take three minutes a day and you'll pray three things. Number one, and you're going to get this, you don't have to write it down. Pray that we will love one another in the church. All right, that's what we are to be known by. Number two, pray that we will love others outside of the church in tangible ways. And pray that we will see the lostness of the world and not be angry, but grieved and moved to action. And then number three, pray for the pastors slash elders of the church to lead the church as God would have them and pray for us to follow and encourage them. And so pray for your current and your future elders. This is the application from this. Right? Pray for our Christian walk and dis- discipline. Pray for our roles as husbands and fathers. Pray for our grasp and understanding of the word. Pray for our preaching and teaching of the word. Pray for the times of counseling and, and witnessing as well as the times of direction and decision making. And pray that in the end we might all serve Christ together with joy to His glory alone. Because it's that that we're truly after. And, and this DTR of the relationship between elders and the congregation is a step to that end. It's a step to that end that that Christ might be known and worshipped and glorified, made much of in our own lives. And we would worship and enjoy Him. And from an overflow, lead others to do the same. We have a mission to fulfill. We've got to make sure our structure for that is secure. And so that's what we're doing here. Elders lead. Congregation who trusts. Let's be that. Let's pray.
Father, I thank You that Your Word is sufficient. It is not an encyclopedia of everything we might ever want to know, but it is, an, it is everything that You would have us know. And it is sufficient for life and godliness, for salvation, and for walking with You. And so I pray that You would help us to, to hide it in our hearts and let it be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path that we might not sin against You. And Father, what we pray about these very practical things as it relates to the structure of the church. Father, we know this is all for the building up of the body. And it is for the care of souls. Souls that in this moment I'm not I'm not forgetful that there are souls in here that are hurting, that are confused, that feel far from you and feel like your love for them has lessened because they base how much they feel loved by you on how they are living for you. And they don't base it on your completed work on the cross. Father, free us from the slavery of performance-driven Christianity. And help us to see the freedom. It is, it is for freedom that You have saved us. Galatians tells us this. So help us to see the freedom that is in You and embrace it and, 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 and allow it to wash over our souls like a cold rain. And you are a good, 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 good Father. And we pray that as a church, you would increasingly become more and more everything. That you would be all to us. In Jesus' name, amen.